Have you heard the true story of the Forest Fen treasure? Anyone catch that? Anybody? Forest Fen treasure? Forest Fen was an art dealer and an author. When given a terminal cancer diagnosis, he hid a treasure of gold and other valuable items worth over $1 million. And then he wrote a poem and published a poem. And in this poem, he hid clues for people to find that treasure. It's a true story. Many, over the past decade, searched for the Fen treasure, and some, sadly, even died on this quest. Well, it took over a decade, but in 2020, the Fen treasure was finally found. I believe it was found up in Wyoming, if I remember correctly. Now, imagine you are the individual, after searching for years, of finding this treasure worth over $1 million. How would you respond? Out of your joy in finding this treasure, how would you respond? You'd be pretty, pretty stoked, right? Yeah, few people would be happy about that. What if you found the treasure of all treasures? Maybe better yet, what if that treasure found you? What if, what if the treasure of all treasures came to planet Earth for you? looking for you to find you. How would you respond to that? That's the question before us. How should we, how should you and I respond to the treasure of all treasures named Jesus? See, in chapter 11, Jesus raised his friend Lazarus from the dead at the mere power of his voice, at his authoritative command, a dead man came back to life. But that amazing miracle set the religious leaders against Jesus. So Jesus left that village called Bethany, which was just two miles from Jerusalem, sort of the center of opposition to Jesus here. But now, verse 1 tells us that Jesus has returned to Bethany, this, this area of danger for him, and a dinner party is thrown on his behalf. In verse 2, we find Lazarus himself is there. I mean, don't you want to ask Lazarus some questions? What was it like to die? And what was it like to come back from the dead? And was that a bummer for you? I mean, do you have to cheer Lazarus up at this dinner party? I don't know. Mary is there, sister of Lazarus, and Mary, Mary, famed for her serving, is here serving. Mary, uh, Mar Martha, Martha, sorry, I said Mary. Martha is serving. Martha is serving. Martha, famed for her serving. Martha is catering the event when the festivities are interrupted by Lazarus's other sister, Mary, in verse 3. Look at verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Mary takes an expensive ointment made from the extract of a plant that grows in India. So it's been purified 
and it's been brought all the way from India. So really, expensive is an understatement. We find later on it's worth 300 denarii. A denarius was about a day's wage for a common laborer or worker. So this is worth about a full year's wages for a common worker. So Mary is taking a year's worth of salary. Just let that land on you. Mary is taking a year's worth of salary and pouring it on Jesus' feet and then wiping his feet with her hair. All polite conversation stopped at this point. No one is lifting fork to mouth. All eyes are focused on Mary trying to take this in. Well, Judas... One of the disciples, in verse 5, objects. You know, that ointment could have been sold and all that money given to the poor. That sounds noble. It sounds altruistic. But John clues us into Judas's motives in verse 6. Judas's concern in verse 6 was really how he could enrich himself, not how others could be helped. So, Jesus speaks up and addresses this moment in verse 7. Look at verse 7. Jesus said, leave her alone. And this is said in the singular. So it's directed at Lazarus specifically. Uh, Lazarus, Judas. I am having trouble with names today. Someone please run to Starbucks for me. Let me try that again. This is directed at Judas. So Jesus says, leave her alone, Judas so that she may keep it, or she intended to keep it, you might say, for the day of my burial. Now notice that. Jesus ties Mary's actions directly to his coming death. Now it's not, it's not clear how much Mary understood what was about to transpire leading to Jesus' crucifixion. She certainly understands that Jesus just raised her brother Lazarus from the dead. She knows he is the resurrection and the life embodied. What she knows beyond that, we can't say with certainty. But Jesus tells us how to interpret her actions. That Mary has prefigured what Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus do for his corpse after he has died and placed in a tomb in chapter 19. So Mary is prefiguring what they will do. And then Jesus explains in verse 8, For, for the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now this is in the plural. Jesus here speaking to all in attendance. The poor you always have with you, you do not always have me. Now, he's not denigrating poor people. Jesus taught quite clearly on the importance of helping people in need. What he's doing is highlighting the uniqueness of this moment, given who he is, given his unique identity. This is an incredibly unique moment where God in the flesh is in your living room. I think you'd agree that's kind of unique. God in the flesh, there in his earthly ministry for just one more week. In other words, Mary has it right. She has prioritized rightly in this moment. She has rightly prioritized him. The question then is, 
Will we do the same? Will we respond to Jesus, the treasure of all treasures, in similar fashion? Mary is responding to Jesus with what commentator Colin Cruz calls an extravagant devotion. I think that's a good description. An extravagant devotion. We see here extravagant devotion on display in at least three ways. Three ways. Here's the first. This is extravagantly bold devotion. Extravagantly bold. Chapter 11 ends, verse 57, chapter 11. It ends with, quote, Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders, notice, that if anyone knew where he was, if anyone knew where Jesus was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him, Jesus. The religious leaders say, if anyone knows where Jesus is, you need to let us know. Implication being, if you don't let us know, but you do know where he is, you're in trouble too. So imagine you're at this dinner party. That's the context. You're enjoying Jesus' presence. But you know your friend Jesus is a marked man. You're wondering, are the neighbors watching? Did anyone else observe Jesus entering Bethany? Does anyone else know that I'm with Jesus right now? You're, you're looking over your shoulder. You're wondering, who knows about this and what might happen? So give Mary, Martha, and Lazarus some credit. What they're doing is rather brave, rather bold. What they're doing is what the Apostle Paul would say later in Acts chapter 20. I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. My highest goal, he's saying, is not my own personal safety. My highest goal is devotion to Christ. Right off the bat, this is challenging. It's so appropriate that Joshua led us in praying for the persecuted church this morning. For Christians in parts of the world where it's not safe to be a Christian. Places where they know what it's like to be looking over your shoulder wondering, will my neighbors turn me in for following Christ? Did they see my underground church dinner party at my house last week? And what if I'm arrested for being a Christian? But they say in all those places, I will follow Christ anyway. That's not counting my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. And it's important that we catch this as Americans. Kind of devotion to Christ that, first of all, bold and brave. It's very possible that at some point, forms of persecution come to the American church. No, not like Saudi Arabia or Afghanistan, but forms of persecution nonetheless could be the loss of a job, some kind of financial hit, loss of friends or family member relationships, just because you follow Christ. That's, that's possibly in our future. And Mary teaches us how to respond, doesn't she? With bold devotion to Jesus anyway. It's bold. Secondly, maybe most centrally, 
It's extravagantly sacrificial devotion. Extravagantly sacrificial devotion. And this is costly, what Mary does. A year's salary poured on Jesus' feet. Mary takes the greatest earthly treasure she has and pours it out on Jesus Christ. For Mary, nothing is off the table in terms of devotion to him. It all belongs to him anyway. If you've flown on an airplane, you've heard a flight attendant say, in case of emergency, and they say this so calmly, in case of emergency, an oxygen mask will descend from the compartment above you. And if that should happen, which it probably won't, but if that should happen, and you're traveling with children, please put the mask on yourself first and then attend to your child. Well, that's good advice on an airplane. But it's not a good way to live the rest of your life. <laughs> but that's what my heart wants to do. Look out for me first. See everything through the prism of me, myself, and I. When it comes to money, spend it on me first. When it comes to time, look out for me first. When it comes to convenience and comfort, prioritize me. Take the oxygen mask and put it on me, not just on the airplane, but in all of life. Can you relate? This devotion, it prioritizes him over me. And that's what I mean by sacrificial or costly. It could be a sacrifice with your finances. I think that reads straight off the page here. If, if in our financial giving to the work of the gospel, we don't feel it at all, if our giving is just money that we'll never miss anyway, it's probably not in the category of sacrificial. But that's hard, isn't it? Jesus taught a lot about money for good reason because it gets right at our hearts. I, I experienced this recently. We got, we got our recent stimulus check. And I found a little internal debate happening. Do I need to tithe from this to the church here? I mean, I, I did the first time. But, I mean, I guess you could think of it as income, but but it's not earned income. I mean, it's not really, you know, so I'm not sure I, I have to tithe from this. I mean, I want to consult the rule book. What do the rules say about pandemic stimulus giving? And can I give the minimum? Can, or can I get off on a technicality? And then I realized, Tab, the issue is your heart. It's not, do I have to, but do I get to? Do I get to invest in God's work right here out of this money? Is this money a privilege, an opportunity to do so all the more? If you said to Mary, Mary, you don't have to pour out a year's salary on his feet. I think Mary would say, I know I don't have to, but I get to. It's my privilege. It's my opportunity to bless my Lord. Or... It could be a sacrifice of time that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you about. 
Maybe he's calling you to be a part of a certain ministry, make time available to serve others or reach out in some fashion. But you're going to have to give up something else to do that. Maybe some leisure activity you enjoy, which is fine to do. But you're wrestling with that. Think about it. On your deathbed, I don't think you'll begrudge the extra ministry you got to do in his name. I don't think then you'll say, did I have to? I think you'll say, I'm so glad I got to. Or maybe the sacrifice comes in some other form of service. I thought of those here who are caring for elderly parents and relatives or a spouse. We vow in marriage for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. And we say those words at the altar with a smile on our face, don't we? It's just a joy. To, of course I do. Of course, richer for poor, sickness and health, no problem until the sickness comes, until physical or mental health declines, and then the real sacrifice kicks in, and some of you are doing that, and the Savior is being glorified out of your devotion to Him. Or maybe... Maybe it's even in supporting someone else in their sacrificial service to Jesus. F.B. Meyer tells of a time when a pastor suggested that his hearers make a love offering to Jesus of something that was especially precious to them. Now, we're not going to do this, but <laughs> they passed around an offering plate and jewels and other valuables were put into the plate. And then an older woman put a note in saying that her daughter had always wanted to serve as a missionary overseas, but this mother had stood in her daughter's way. And now, out of love for Christ, she would stand in her daughter's way no longer, but would, as it were, give her up as she wants to serve the spread of the good news around the world. It's something we get do. It's extravagantly sacrificial, extravagantly bold. And thirdly, I think you could say this is extravagantly unashamed devotion. It's extravagantly unashamed. The gospel writers, Matthew and Mark, include this scene as well. It appears three times in the New Testament. But Matthew and Mark highlight Mary anointing Jesus' head like a king would be anointed. So surely she did that. But John, if you notice, intentionally just highlights Mary anointing Jesus' feet. And the symbolism is important because in the next chapter, he's going to show Jesus washing the disciples' feet to teach the disciples this lesson that Mary models for them in advance. Mary anoints Jesus' feet, doing the most Menial work possible. The work of the most menial servant or slave. It's incredibly humble, unashamed, regardless of what others think. 
And that's even clearer, even clearer in how Mary lets down her hair to wipe Jesus' feet. In this culture, a woman letting down her hair in public would often be considered shameful. Now, there is nothing immoral in Mary's actions. It's just intense, personal devotion, regardless of what others may think about her. Richard Phillips, I think, helpfully comments, quote, by not only unbinding her hair, by not only unbinding her hair, but using it to wipe Jesus' feet, Mary expressed a completely surrendered devotion in which nothing was held back. That's what you're seeing. A completely surrendered devotion with nothing held back, not reputation, not the good opinion of others, completely surrendered devotion, nothing held back, unashamedly devoted to Jesus Christ. That's what Mary calls us to. She's like, she's like King David in the Old Testament. When they are bringing the Ark of the Covenant of God back into Jerusalem, and David is leaping and, and dancing in worship to God. And David's wife, King Saul's daughter, says, you've made a fool of yourself. And David replies, it, it was before the Lord. I will celebrate before the Lord. And then he says this, I love this. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. <laughs> in other words, I am unashamed to show my love for God in any way I can. Is that you, friend? Unashamed. Show your love for God in any way you can. God is inviting us, isn't he, to be like Mary here. Teenagers, our youth, I, I thought of you here. Are you on board with this? You willing to sign on to this? Unashamed, unhindered devotion to Jesus? That when, not if, but when, you have to choose between the approval of peers and identifying with Jesus, you choose Jesus every time. It's not easy in the teen years, not easy in the college age years, not easy for a middle-aged man like myself. But you're not going to be loved by this world if you follow Christ. Your peers are not going to applaud your commitment to Christ. You're going to have to decide which love will most govern me, which devotion will most rule me to this world or to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's true for all of us. For me, I think unashamed devotion involves turning away from my love of reputation to share the good news of Christ? Am I, am I willing to look like a fool for Christ for the sake of outreach and evangelism? Unashamed devotion for you might look like reaching out to a neighbor or friend or coworker, building a relationship, showing the love of Christ, Sharing the good news of Christ. It's saying, I don't have to. I get to. It's my privilege for him. Which really raises the most important question from this passage. 
Do we believe that Jesus is worthy of such extravagant devotion? That's the bottom line here. That's the question that most confronts us in this text. Do we truly believe that Jesus is worthy of such bold, sacrificial, unashamed devotion? Do we truly believe that in our heart of hearts? And Judas sounds kind of noble when he says, this could have been sold and the money given to the poor. But what's he implying? He's implying that Jesus is not worthy of that devotion that Mary displays. That's the question you and I most need to ask and answer. Do we truly believe that extravagant devotion is bold, sacrificial, and unashamed is the right, good, and necessary response to Jesus Christ? Or is it just some kind of religious fanaticism? Well, to answer that question, I want you to consider the context of this passage. Think about the context with me. Look back to verse 1 one more time. Chapter 12, verse 1 says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus, therefore, therefore, came to Bethany. The therefore looks back to the previous scene and previous verse. Where, do you recall? The religious authorities want to arrest him. They want to arrest him. Therefore, Jesus comes back to Bethany, a mere two miles from Jerusalem. It's Jesus' obedience leading intentionally to his cross to die for us. And verse 1 says, it's six days before the Passover. It's the final week of the earthly ministry of the one who is our Passover lamb the one who died and rose, that God's judgment might pass over all who will believe. In Jesus' own interpretation, verse 7, Mary is anointing him for his burial. His death is squarely in view for him. And if we weren't catching it, verse 10 puts a bow on it. Verse 10, so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. As well as who? As well as Jesus. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So the religious leaders here want to kill Lazarus as well as Jesus. <laughs> That's the context for Mary's action. That's the setting God gives to us for this extravagant devotion. It's his sacrifice for us, his love for us. His devotion to us. So will we say, I don't have to. I get to. When we realize we are simply responding to his far greater love, far greater devotion, and far greater sacrifice. I thought of, and I, I realize this might seem silly, but I thought of a children's book I used to read to my children when they were very young called Guess How Much I Love You. How many of you are familiar with Guess How Much I Love You? It's about big nut brown hair, the rabbit, and their child rabbit, I guess, little nut brown hair. 
And little nut brown hair says to big nut brown hair, guess how much I love you. And then little nut brown hair spreads his little arms and says, I, I love you this much. And then big nut brown hair spreads his much bigger arms and says, I love you this much. And then little nut brown hair, not to be outdone, says, I love you this much, stretches his hands up. And then, of course, big nut brown hair says, I love you this much, stretching up his far bigger hands and arms. It goes on until finally, little nut brown hair says, I love you up to the moon, and falls asleep. And big nut brown hair kisses little nut brown hair and says, I love you up to the moon and back. Look, Mary and you and me, we're just little nut brown hair. Just doing this. You will never love Jesus more than he loves you. Not even close. You will never be more devoted to him than he is devoted to you. Not even close. You will never sacrifice for him more than he has sacrificed for you, hanging on a cross, bearing God's judgment, God's wrath against your sins until he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You're not going to sacrifice more than he has. Not even close. As the Apostle John put it, we love we love why? Because he first loved us. He first loved you. So we say, I don't have to. I get to. Because he is worthy. He is worthy. He is the treasure of all treasures who came to planet Earth looking for me. And found me. Let's pray, friends. And then we'll take the Lord's Supper to celebrate our Savior's love. So would you respond to me, respond with me rather, first in prayer? And I don't know what the Holy Spirit might be putting on your heart this morning might be the sweet gift of conviction in some way, and it is a gift. Conviction's a gift. Some way you're putting the oxygen mask on yourself first in other areas of life. And you're starting to realize he's putting before you an opportunity, a privilege of being more and more devoted to him, boldly, or sacrificially, or unashamedly, respond to him right now. Where you are convicted and aware of sin, acknowledge that to him. He is eager to forgive and cleanse.
Or if you'd say, I've never known this Savior like that. I've never trusted his sacrifice for me. I urge you to do so right now. To turn from going your own way and turn to Christ and trust in his life, death, and resurrection for you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for this compelling picture preserved for us in Holy Scripture. I thank you even more so that we know where this is going. That this is about a sacrifice sinners like me need desperately. And so thank you is not enough. Expressions of devotion are not enough. We do, however, say thank you, and we worship you. Help us. Help us to say in our lives, not do, do I have to, but let us see that we now get to. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so appropriate that we're going to close taking the Lord's Supper. So those who would serve us, please prepare to do so at this time, if you would. In taking the bread and cup, you are reminded, friends, you are reminded of Christ's love for you, Christ's sacrifice for you, Christ's devotion to you. And so come receiving by believing. Come taking the Lord's Supper, rejoicing of Christ's has done because on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup saying, this is God's covenant sealed in my blood, my sacrifice. And he said, drink from it in remembrance of me. So when you're ready, we invite all of trusted Jesus Christ to come to one of the serving stations, take the bread and the cup and feed on Christ by faith. And if you're here and you've yet to trust in Christ, we urge you to do so right now. Take Christ, friends, by turning to him and trusting in his life, death, and resurrection. When you're ready, please come.